Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn with Focus Compounding, on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we push out into the investing universe. The best way to do that is to follow me on Twitter at, at @focusedcompound. Go to focuscompound.com to get access to investment write-ups from Jeff. Uh, you can learn about our investment management services. Uh, you'll see our deck there if you're interested in uh, learning about how we invest and how we can invest for you. And uh, make sure you go to the description to click our uh, link to join our free weekly newsletter, the Focus Compounding Weekly Edition. Uh, that will get sent out every single Friday in your mailbox, uh, which will have a investment topic from Jeff, as well as uh, a monitor of sorts from me of content and just interesting situations that I am looking at um, from uh, the week. So be sure to check all that information out in the description below uh, to get access to that. So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, normalized earnings, Jeff, and somebody had emailed this into you. And I don't want to go word by word, but I thought it would make a great topic for the podcast. Um, and he basically said, I was hoping you all might be able to do a pod about normalized earnings. I know it's a broad topic and in large part, the essence of investing. Someone who can't estimate normalized earnings has no business buying a company or stock. But I was wondering what sort of mental categories Jeff has for how to normalize earnings, if any. And then he gives about four different situations that we can look at. Supply-driven cyclicals demand-driven cyclicals, idiosyncratic slash semi-cyclical, and bond-like earnings patterns. So uh, before we jump into it, Jeff, maybe walk us through how you think about normalized earnings, why it's important, and uh, why everyone listening uh, should really make sure they get this part right when they're going through their investment research. Sure. So um, normally we would look at something like QuickFS, you know, you have a 10-year summary there and use sort of median numbers or cumulative numbers, um, either relating it to sales or relating it maybe to uh, like book value or the amount of assets it has or something like that. So um, one way that you could do that is just taking a normal company, you would look at maybe the most recent year sales and you would assume that the margin is going to normalize over time. So if it's very high or very low, you're gonna assume that it's more like the median margin over the 10 year period. Um, when you do that, you're probably going to want to adjust for uh, the relationship between, say, like EBIT and free cash flow. So some companies are going to have very low free cash flow. Some are going to have um, very high relative to EBIT. And so the way I do that usually is cumulatively, say, take the last 10 years, what was free cash flow total and divide that into uh, what was EBIT total or EBITDA or whatever you want to use that people might um often talk about it in terms of, because we care mostly about free cash flow over the very long term. Okay. So what are those two numbers showing when you're taking the free cash flow accumulation and the EBIT? So it depends on um, what kind of business it is, but we would either apply something to the balance sheet numbers. So like equity, or we would apply it to, for a more capital intensive business, or we'd apply it to sales right? And assume that that um, 
converts. So like, say we have, you know, $7 billion in, in, um, sales or something. If we had a 10% margin, then we'd say, okay, then normalize. This is going to be 700 million. Um, obviously free cash flow is going to move around more than some of the other numbers like EBITDA, um, usually, uh, for just year to year, although over like a three year period or something, they might be very similar because you'll have some years where it's strong or weak. So like, we don't necessarily pay attention to things like enterprise value to free cash flow or something on a one year basis for most stocks. Um, for some stocks, it, it won't really make a difference. So, you know, a very service oriented stock, a, uh, you know, a advertising agency or something is usually going to convert a similar amount of free cash flow each year, but a retailer won't. So like Omicom, for example, maybe that's a great mm -hmm. example of a company. Yeah. So it says, um, you know, uh, where the calculation is there, it says that what's, the, does it have for free cash flow margin? Free cash flow margin is 11%. 11%. And what does it have for the most recent year's sales? 14.2 billion. Okay, so then you just take 11% of that 14.2 billion and then, you know, you'd get a number there which is not difficult to figure out and what do we have as the enterprise value? Enterprise value is 17.5 billion. Okay, so actually if we looked at the cash flow statement, there might be some uh movement in it from the most recent years, I think. Did the free cash flow come down quite a bit this year? It did. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, previously we we're talking doing you know, almost 2 billion in cash flow yeah. from operations with obviously not a lot of CapEx that goes into that, but net income fell off a cliff in 2022, uh, only did 927 million in cash flow from operations. Uh, they did 778 million in CapEx. Uh, they did buy something as well, but yeah, uh, free cash flow was down a bunch in 2022. And the other way to do it is just to take the last three years. Mm -hmm. And for some companies, that'll work fine. For some of the things he mentioned, though, it won't work at all. And so those are trickier situations. But for things like, you know, your Omnicoms, your Costco's, things that are very predictable from year to year, um, it's not going to make a huge difference as long as you use like a three-year average or something. You don't even need to use margins probably. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the Omnicom probably would fall in the bond-like earnings patterns yeah. category, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, but but still for free cash flow, you do want to make sure that you use a few years. I would never use less than three years. Um, if it's growing fast or something and, you know, you know that it's growing the number of um, customers all the time, like say Costco's opening more stores or something, then it would be very reasonable to apply um, the most recent year sales, but at least the three-year average margin or something. I wouldn't ever just take one year's um number for that for earnings or for a free cash flow or something for some companies it, it, honestly um say like a bank actually the annualized quarterly number is probably more indicative than anything else so if you just took the earnings per share um and you normalized it uh that's with some adjustments though because obviously if there's security stuff in there you'd have to take that out but absent the security stuff um you know what they report is their core numbers or if they're not um reporting uh changes in the security stuff um, then that's probably actually more accurate um, than anything else, to be honest, is the quarterly number times four. Mm -hmm. So the first category he has, supply-driven cyclicals. I would say this is probably hard, right, to get some sort of normalized, or it's just a little bit lumpier than a bond-like earnings pattern. Uh, he says, here I'm thinking of commodity-type businesses where contractions and supply drive good earnings. So how would you think about what could be normalized earnings uh, in uh, supply-driven cyclical. So a supply-driven cyclical would be something like oil, 
uh, demand for oil doesn't change much from year to year. In a recession or something, it might change um, quite a bit dramatically from one year to the next in terms of the percentage move compared to what it normally moves by. But the actual level doesn't change much from year to year. Um, it's pretty stable all the time. But it's hard for them to match supply off exactly. So the supply gets a little too high or a little too low, and then you get you know um, prices that go one way or the other. Um, Demand-driven cyclical would be more like, um, you know, he, uh, there he's mentioning um, airlines and uh, the other company that he mentioned, Samero, is a um, makes uh, machines for leveling things for like, for, for instance, for building a Costco, you might use it for the um, floor there. Uh, and I would say another one would be like um, the lime business because prices don't change a lot in that industry and it's not very supply driven at all because they often don't operate near full capacity but um you can have a 50 percent or more decline in demand sometimes so a company like samaro is that a situation that you would be interested in i mean looking at trading what appears to be cheap now again because yeah. he brought this up with uh, this topic, you'd have to figure out if those normalized earnings are cheap. But from a gross margin perspective, it doesn't bounce around a lot, pretty high. Operating margin has been improving. So maybe they're benefiting from some sort of scale. Um, yeah, take us through what you see in this company. I, I probably wouldn't be very interested in it. I think it's impossibly difficult to figure out um, the earnings in the short term. Uh Here's the issue with these companies, any of them, you have to think really about the business and think about the length of the cycle. So you have to capture a full cycle for it, no matter what. Now, it could be unfair to this company, just like it is to home builders or to companies that um, that are in other things that driven by that, which is that the financial crisis might have been much worse for them than a normal cycle. But if we go back over a full cycle, you can see that they're turns on um, invested capital and all of that are, are almost negative for half the period or are inadequate and then they're good for the other half and so while it might seem like there's a strong trend it's it's not clear that that's coming from anything other than recovery from what happened before uh the, the basically they sell of some of the machines i would say they sell none in a bad year um so this is extremely cyclical sort of like um companies that make equipment for mines, companies that make equipment for shipyards. Um, so if you go each step of the way, um, you know, the the demand for building out new, say, industrial space, commercial space, whatever, is pretty cyclical. And then even more cyclical than that is the CapEx on stuff that they're going to use to do that construction, right? So it's it's even higher. It's even more cyclical. So you have to be more careful about that. Um you know, if we took oil or something, there there's going to be parts of it um, that are closest to the consumer are going to be, have very short cycles, and parts that are very far away are going to have very long cycles. You know, um, if it was for, um, let's say you had something that was capital equipment used only in offshore drilling or something, well, that's very, very marginal. And so that could be that uh, it can go for, you know, a decade and not sell much of anything, and then it can be selling a lot. Um, so it, you know, it, it's not the same as the cheapest sources of oil or things that are, you know, more maintenance driven and stuff. Um, so, you know, th these are things that are not consumable. Um, they're CapEx that they have to do. And so it, it's different. The same thing would be true in technology things and stuff, right? Um, 
things that go into data centers and stuff are going to be much more an expense that they can decide we want to do it or we don't want to do it. Um, and you can put it off for a long time. Mm -hmm. Speaking of oil, did you see that Buffett, he bought some more Oxy? And yeah. as we're recording this today, uh, October 26th, uh, he bought more on the 24th, uh, 23rd and the 25th, actually. And uh, he actually purchased above his uh, previous top before he would not go above $60 per share, I think. And now he's starting to buy a little bit above. Uh, uh, he bought a bunch at $62 uh, range of 62 69 and 63.05 in Oxy. Yeah, so that's like... Um what is that 250 million dollars or something but i think his preferred got paid off like 700 million or something so from oxy so i'm not even sure if the total investment in oxy is even as high as it was before that might have been one of the reasons why he did it or it might just be some other reason i mean it's a little bit above the price he was using before but it did seem like there's a pretty big gap there i don't know if it was six months or something right mm -hmm. it's so fascinating to me uh given his size and how much capital he has to invest uh, investors and even he always talks about how much smaller his investing universe is, right? But here's Occidental uh, Petroleum that he's just been, you know, buying just you know basically day by day, right, for a very long time or at certain points in time, and it seems like no one really. I mean, people follow and people notice, but it's not like the stock has gone anywhere, right? I mean, we're using Inside Arbitrage uh, to pull us up and get. Uh, view of all of his purchases, but the stock has literally gone nowhere and he's just uh, been able to continue to accumulate stock. Yeah, it ha it has a lot of um, volume. I've looked at some of these things. Uh, oil companies, US oil companies and stuff have a ton of volume compared to most um, companies of similar size and stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it is interesting that way. Yeah. We talked about that a little bit at the annual meeting. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so demand-driven cyclicals, right? So you spoke a little bit about that with Samaro, but um, what is like? How would you think about what the normalized earnings could be for a company like Southwest, for example? Which they, they actually just reported earnings uh, a couple days ago, I believe, and uh, they are, I think, doing okay. But yeah, how would you think about like in a situation like this, where part of their business could be tied to the price of oil? Um, also maybe the economy in the sense of people spending or the business cycle, uh, business travel or whatnot, how would you be thinking about coming up with a normalized earnings figure for a company like Southwest? Well, I mean, during an economic cycle, which we're trying to take out of these normalizations, right? Um, you are going to see increases and decreases in demand, but generally I would focus on the supply. Um, if supply growth is too high and whether that's a problem, you know, um, so as in airplanes, yeah, you know, I mean, airplanes and just in terms of how they work the schedule and everything, but yes, in terms of how many, um, um, you know, uh, seat miles can be flown and everything. Um, so just what capacity looks like overall that way. Um, but yeah, the a leading indicator of that, of course, is, is, um, the aircraft that you can see being delivered and everything just like in the cruise industry or something. I mean, it's easy to track sort of growth in those things and estimates of what it'll be. So um, unless there's a change long-term in what you expect the increase in traffic to be, I mean, Southwest is a little easier because it's just a domestic one. Um, but if it's off the trend that you would normally have, just as if oil, you know, supply was growing, that would be worrying um, because, you know, demand's not growing a lot. So, um, 
same thing here. I mean, in some countries and years ago, you know, you had rates of like 5% or something in terms of the growth. Um, so the real growth was a lot higher than it was in the economy, you know, as, um, it's one of these parts of the economy that grew bigger over time relative to the economy. But, um, you know, you, you just, it's the same thing that we talk about with, you know, bank things or whatever, you would have to be taking market share unless you, if you're really growing a lot faster than GDP or something. So you would want to not see growth that's too high that way. Um, but long-term averages are probably pretty good. As we saw with the very long-term stuff, there is a difference in terms of the level of rivalry in the industry, and that's true for any industry. And so there were years where it was quite bad in airlines. Um, but, you know, over the last 25 years, it's gotten better. It's a lot better than it was. You didn't have as many new airlines formed and everything. Um, it had, Demand disappeared in a, a couple times, right? So you had September 11th, you had the financial crisis, and you had COVID. Um, but, you know, that seems to be a lot of what happened. It, it doesn't seem like it, the trend is bad for the last 25 years in terms of too much supply and too much competition, really. So let's see. Um, out of all of these, which would you say you're more, most comfortable with... Um, I guess, uh, investing in? Is it more so the bond-like earnings patterns? I mean, I had sent you a, a write-up that I thought was super interesting by Andrew Walker. I don't know if you uh, had a mm -hmm. chance to read it, but he was talking about Buffett and his um, investing style and how you can you know hit a bunch of base hits with these companies that are sort of like the bond-like earnings patterns that maybe go through a temporary problem or sell off with the market or whatever, and you get an opportunity to invest in them. But he made the case for a lot of Buffett's large long-term winners have had some sort of um, you know, inflection point in the industry or the business itself. And I think basically what he was saying was similar to what we've talked about, like uh, you know, industries becoming less competitive and um, consolidating. And it's much more about like free cash flow and, and uh, you know, stability of the business itself. Is there a particular category here that you feel more comfortable investing in and do you think do you agree with him when he was he was talking about that um as it comes to like buffett's investing and and inflection points in the industry and in the company itself yeah he focuses on those things so a uh, change in the company's fortune so sometimes it's a cheap price from the company just because of some temporary problem but other times it's refocusing on the core stuff um, and a change in direction in terms of management stuff. And then the other one is uh, when there's a change in the industry, like railroads and um, airlines. He invested in both of them when he saw that getting better. Do you think airlines are an interesting investment here today? I mean, because Buffett invested in them and then he sold them, and really that was a COVID-related thing. But would you be surprised if you saw him? I mean, I know Berkshire does have a stake, right, in a bunch of different airlines, but we don't know if that's him or not. But would you be shocked if you saw him invest in airlines? Or do you think he's completely ruled them out? Um, I don't know for sure if he's completely ruled them out, but I wouldn't be surprised if he has, yeah. Because I think um, they're not very big versus Berkshire. He had to buy across all of them, and then he realized that the problem is that, you know, they wouldn't get a bailout, basically. if you know How can they say they're going to bail them out because they're bailing out Berkshire in that case? Um, and they won't let you know, airlines stop flying and stuff. So as you saw, they made them lose lots of money, but they, you know, recapitalized them and everything during um, COVID. So uh, 
I, that might be the end of him investing in them. I wouldn't be surprised if it is. Mm-hmm. So is there a category that you've been most successful with out of these four? Yeah, I mean, uh, the bond-like earnings patterns are the easiest um, because then you can just look if it's cheap and look at the company specifically that way. Um, it It depends on what's driving the returns. So the... The thing about these um, that we looked at, like Samara or something like that, the um, the business model works when you can sell enough, right? Um, and in the cases that we just talked about with like airlines, if rivalry is low enough, the, the actual economics of the business are really good. Um, not a lot is captured by others in the sort of value chain there. You don't have to tie up a lot of capital doing what you're doing. Southwest even um, does tie up an incredible amount of capital compared to other airlines, and it's still managed for a long time to have good returns. Um, the problem is, you know, I mean, there there are issues with gates and some issues with marketing and everything, but for the most part, you can move airplanes very easily to change your schedules so that you are able to increase rivalry really fast. Um, so the problem is that, you know, you can drive things down to where you're not making any money. Um, and limitation on that rivalry is, is what, you know, will make you money there. In other industries, the pressure is not always from rivalry. A lot of times it isn't. Uh, the product economics are not that great because you don't have a lot of bargaining power with customers or you don't have a lot of bargaining power with suppliers. You know, you have issues like that. Um, so I wouldn't say that it's necessarily too much rivalry as much as other problems that are, you know, the industry faces that way. Um, it's, I mean, look, you can use past peak sales numbers, um, but in some of these, you are not sure you'll ever reach those again. Um, it's fairly easy if you can pick a year in which you know that where you don't have to actually figure out what the normalized earnings are. You just have to figure out that they're a lot higher. So if it's not a really good year and you expect it to get better, um, then buying it in at those earnings uh, can work pretty well for you. So I wouldn't say that if you were looking at, um, you know, cars or houses in, you know, let's say pre COVID, but in the last five years or so before then or something, um, there wasn't really good reason to think that it was um, that volumes were higher than would be normal. You know, you could see in the past how many, uh, what production was or what sales were um, industry-wide. And you could see that it wasn't kind of over replacement rate or over the normal level that you'd expect unless people were going to, you know, say own cars uh, for much longer. So it's possible to figure that out. And then if you get a reasonable price, say you have 15 times PE or less, um, then, you know, you're doing okay. Uh, and there were ones like that where, uh, whether we talked about Hunter Douglas or Frost, Frost needed higher interest rates, interest rates were near zero. So as long as you assumed interest rates would be higher, then at 13 times earnings or something, you know that, you know, the normalized earnings, it's cheaper than that. Uh, the same thing with like Hunter Douglas, where it was a volume based thing and you could see how much money you made in all years prior to the housing bust. And then it was a really big bust. So you, you know, you had a feeling that that would come back. Um, 
but there are other ones where it's tougher, um, mainly because you can't estimate those things. Um, in which case you may often want an asset based uh, number to use and sales, you know, in these highly cyclical ones, I wouldn't use the most recent year sales. I mean, Ben Graham would just use like a 10 year number or, you know, you could use like a Schiller PE or something like that. Um, I wouldn't do like say semiconductor or something. I wouldn't use the most recent year sales cause that's inflated a lot by pricing. Um, it's a very big part of the overall sales number. The, the gross margin changes by a huge amount. So, um, it, you know, th that number moves a lot more than you would expect because the pricing moves so dramatically. Um, you could, of course, judge things with inventory and stuff. It's not perfect, but, um, you know, inventory relative to sales levels and stuff or inventory relative to normal sales levels. You know, they always talk about housing versus um, the housing inventory versus the sales of like this most recent month or something. But that's not always the best because that number changes a lot. But if you can see what it is versus a normal level of, um, of uh, sales volume in a year, then you would know if it's really low. Um, you know, the easiest way to see a turn in the industry for a lot of industries, not all of them, is inventory. It's inventory is too high versus normal levels of sales. Um, there are some where there'd be capacity things and stuff, but you know, um, those are more like when we talk about things like, uh, you know, um, graph tech or something, right? Where someone says, okay, so there's going to be no new supply for a little while, but then when new supply comes on, it, it could be really big, right? Each individual plant that put that's put in or whatever accounts for a big part of the overall um, supply. So it's not, you know, it, it's matters more that way with the CapEx. Mm -hmm. Whatever happened to graph tech's stock? I feel like we haven't, let's see. Because it was uh, pretty popular in like, what, 2019 era, era, right? 2018, 2019. Yeah, and its stock went up to 20, and now it's down to three. So is this a good situation of when you want to be thinking about normalized earnings after, you know, the stock is completely bombed out and it seems like no one is uh, talking about it anymore, right? So this is a cyclical business. So how would you be mm -hmm. thinking about, okay, what uh, could the normalized earnings be in a company like this? Well, we talked about this a little bit. Graphtech is a really unusual situation and one I wouldn't feel confident um, making estimates about because the truth is that um, as part of the chain of production there, you have something that's essentially a byproduct. I mean, a way of thinking about it is sort of like, um, say, oil or something, right? So when you break down a barrel of oil, um, it's not going to all be made into gasoline, right? But you may only really, you know, the the gasoline demand might be a real reason for doing it. But you're going to get all these other products as the way to best um, make money, right? So um, because of that, the supply of some things might increase when you don't need it to or may not increase. And one of the things that was interesting about GraphTech was the possibility of um, insensitivity on that point. Uh, we've talked about substitution and stuff like that. So there are things where, well, let's let's use an example, George Risk, right? So the housing crisis happened. George Risk's uh, gross margins went right back to where they were before because they raised prices to get to those margins. Um, auto parts companies 
have a similar thing. Uh, one reason why car companies aren't that great is because they don't make their own parts and they basically require those companies would need to have a good return on capital, not great, but good enough return on capital, stay in business and everything to keep supplying them. So there's not much they can do about that. So they sign a contract and it has like a price per part, right? But that's really based on the idea that the entire contract is some normal level of um, demand, right? And so if you suddenly decide that you're going to um, build a lot less of a specific car that you have, you know, some parts going into, uh, after a few years, it's going to be renegotiated. And that was the issue that we talked about with Graphtech is that basically when that was pitched as a stock is that it was basically saying this is like above market rates. So that gets tricky. Um, I, I wouldn't put a lot of faith in that, that those aren't going to be renegotiated. Um, you know, just because you have a contract in place, you know, um, you know, Berkshire, when Berkshire bought um, the Buffalo News, Buffalo Evening News, uh, they had contracts in place. And Buffett said to the newsprint producers, you know, we will um, honor the contracts. So if they had three years left to run them, then they would do that. They, they were buying from like half a dozen different ones instead of focusing on just buying from one like a newspaper would normally do. Um, or, you know, you can lower your price by 10% and then, you know, we can stay your customer. And they all lowered their price, you know, even though they had a contract. So it's more the economic reality of it that matters, not necessarily what it's at in the um, in the market at the moment, right? That's the same thing when we talk about oil or whatever. We've talked about that before. If the price of oil goes to some huge number for you know the next month out, that doesn't necessarily mean that that you should expect that to be the average price in the long term. I, I would use some sort of average real price because very few of the barrels of oil that are in the ground are actually going to be taken out while the price is really high. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, even now you look at production numbers and the United States are at all-time highs. But then you look at like inventories and everything and then they're not at, there's not a correlation there. So I'm like, I think this is people that were chasing $120 oil back in 2022 and maybe it just took time or whatever. And I mean, there's a cycle to, or a lag time to bringing that on, you know, the production. Yeah. And in some industries, you know, there's a really significant lag time that way. I mean, we talk about venture capital things and all that, you know, you can have industries where a lot of capital is put into it. And it's going to take a long time to burn through that for some things. Um, you know, less of that these days in the United States, but there's some other countries and stuff where there is a lot of it. And there were times in the past where there was a lot in the United States. The United States isn't such a capital intensive sort of economy that way. Um, but, you know, and then when that happens, then you would have deflation and all of that. Um, be, you know, because basically, right, you're, the problem that you're going to have is these break-even things. Um U.S. Steel is a good example, right? Like, there will be a point at which it makes sense that they will lose less on a cash flow basis if they operate plants that are actually unprofitable. Um, you know, so it, it depends with barriers to exit and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing to keep in mind is, like, sometimes things can change and you have to use kind of common sense that way. Like if you type in um, Engels Market, I-M-K-T-A, something like that I think is the ticker. Um, is that it? Engels is I-N-G-L-E-S. Um, 
you can see there that it looks like it had this spike in terms of its returns. And you would think, oh, that's going to come down. It's a supermarket and everything. Um, we don't know that it will come down. This company, unlike most supermarket companies, um, is somewhat vertically integrated and it owns the uh, supermarkets, right? So if you adjust for that fact, looking at its properties and stuff, it's actually now trading below replacement value. You can't build the supermarkets that they have, that square footage, the acres they have, the distribution center they have, the, the dairy processing thing they have, all of that. You can't do it for the price that the company sells at. So actually this company is selling in the market, even though it looks like, oh, this could be expensive. Look how its earnings went shooting up. Margins you know, went from 3% to 6%. But in reality, there was just inflation. And they already built everything. You know, so it's the same situation you have if you're an oil company or something and you're not putting anything into CapEx and you're just going to run it down. Uh, yes, your returns on capital would spike, but it's because we're not adjusting the asset value to market value. In reality, what happened is the market value is now much higher, but the price to book is reflecting a number, which is the past number. So it's like a toll bridge business that way, you know, um, the... Returns can be much higher now than they were in the past, which isn't really realistic because, you know, they can't open a new supermarket and achieve those returns. And if they sold the company, presumably they would sell it for more than, uh, you know, what it's at. And the acquirer wouldn't be able to make these high returns on it. It's just that because of the historical um, number that we see, that's why the number is that way. Um, you know, and there's all sorts of things like that that you could see. You know, banks right now are having that similar issue. People are saying, you know, the ones that have the uh, accumulated um, comprehensive loss, um, it reduces their book value. But what people won't realize about that until later is that um, their returns on equity are going to go up, right? Because that's not changing what their yields are going to be going forward, right? If you if you adjust it, okay, um, if you imagine one way to think about it is, okay, say they sold all their portfolio and bought it back, right? Well, if they did that, you take a loss, but then after taking the loss, you now have higher yields. So it's going to look like, whoa, why did their return on equity go up? But it's not just a one-time hit because of something that happened that doesn't change the yields on it. You go from having lower yields to having higher yields. So the combination of it will make it look similar to like what, what we're seeing here with this company, where people will be kind of baffled by how that happened. Um, you know, And in both cases, an adjustment to market value, right? Um, securities, fixed income stuff, dropped a lot in value. But actually, supermarkets went up a lot in value. It's just we don't quote them at market prices and everything, so we don't know that. But as bonds went down 20% or whatever, these went up 20%. Um, you know, And they paid for it in old money, and so uh, they can have these higher returns. I don't know if they'll stay at exactly this level, but it's likely that they'll be very high if they don't put more money into the business. Um, you know, and right now they're at kind of a maintenance capex type level of it. I think they do 100, 150 million a year, and what do we have here? Enterprise value of you know 1.4 mm -hmm. billion. So cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If this is the first time you are joining us, be sure to check out all of our content on the internet. Follow me on Twitter at at Focused Compound and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter. You can get all the information of everything that we went over on this podcast in the description below. I thank everybody so much for all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.